Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcc.com. Good morning, church. How are we doing? All right. See, I like that enthusiasm on the Daylight Saving Sunday, when I would expect to have like, you know, 10 or 15 people here, most of whom are on staff, and uh, no, you guys are here, you're energized, so we're going to get after it. Um, We are going through a series in the book of Genesis, uh, as you, I'm sure you are aware, for those of you who've been around for a while. Today, we're going to cover one whole chapter of the Bible. We're going to walk straight through Genesis chapter 19. So, um, at our church, what we do is called expository preaching. Um, what that means is that we, we go straight through books of the Bible so that you're exposed to all that the Bible teaches in each of those books. The benefit of this is that the Bible sets the agenda for us. So the Bible, um, it, it, it tells us, it gives us the subject matter week to week as we preach, and it also forces us to look at difficult texts. Today's text is one of those difficult texts. Um, the fact of the matter is, the more uncomfortable a particular of scripture, a particular text of scripture makes us feel, the more carefully we need to listen to it, right? Because that discomfort that we feel is God getting our attention. God is correcting us. God is speaking to us. He's telling us who He really is, as opposed to who we might want Him to be or who we might conceive Him to be uh, from culture, things like that. So, we're going to walk straight through Genesis 19 together today. Verse by verse, we're going to listen to God's word and let God's word speak. The story we're about to read is a story of sowing and reaping. It's uh, Lot had sown friendship with the world. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the worldliness of Lot. Lot had sown friendship with the world, and he's about to reap the painful consequences of that decision. Sodom, the city of Sodom, had corrupted him and his wife and his daughters. This is also a story of judgment and mercy, because God is just, right? God is a just judge, and his judgments are always righteous and good, and yet God is also merciful. We're going to see God's mercy come through in the text, uh, because God sent two angels to rescue Lot from his coming judgment before Sodom was destroyed. And you'll see these things play out as we go through the text today. So stay with me. We're going to hear from God. Let's dig in. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. All right, first thing. Uh, Angels don't have wings. You You might have seen like, you know, the little baby, you know, cherubs, you know, on notebook covers and stuff. That's all pop culture, pop Christianity. Angels don't have wings. Um, angels are different from the seraphim. You know, these in Isaiah chapter 6 where they were floating around and worshiping God in the temple. The seraphim have wings. 
Um, but angels are not seraphim. It's a different class of being. Angels are, the word angel is a job description. It's not so much a classification as it is a job description. It tells us what they do. And the job of angels is to be messengers. God sends angels and they interact with us, with, us, with humans. And angels always appear in human form in the Bible. So that being said, when Lot saw them, he knew there was something special about them. He recognized something about them. These are no ordinary visitors, and we know this because when he saw them, he bowed himself down to them. He showed a, a great amount of respect for them whenever he met them. But even though hospitality was a big deal in the ancient world, and these two angels have come to Lot's uh, town, he was really eager to get rid of them. It says that, uh, said, come to our house so that you may leave early. And it said that, uh, that he made them unleavened bread. That's Hebrew fast food. It's like Mickey D's, you know, for, for Old Testament Israel. I mean, like, you make it quick so that way you can eat it, and then you get up before dawn. First thing, you get out of this house. And Lot did that because he knew what was going to happen. But it was too late. The men of Sodom had already noticed the angels. They saw them when they arrived, and so they came knocking on his door. Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, notice the repetition here, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, I think everybody's there, right? <laughs> they surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. We'll pause. So there wasn't a single man of Sodom who didn't show up at Lot's house, and that's repeated for emphasis. Everybody was there. Verse 5, it says that we may know them. Now, the word know there has a sexual connotation. It means a sexual knowledge. And essentially what the text is telling us here is that the intent of these men was to rape Lot's visitors. So here's the scene. You have these two angels... They're eating their McDonald's, Mickey Hebrew or whatever, in uh, Lot's kitchen table, eating dinner there, when this gang of rapists shows up outside the door, and they're banging on the door, demanding Lot send them out into the open where they would have their way with these angels. Now, since Lot knows that these, these guests are sent from God, he can't let that happen. He's got to do whatever he can to protect them. So he's in this really desperate situation. So in this desperate move, what he does, he, he says something that's unthinkable. Really, it's just like beyond imagining that any father would say what he's about to say. Well, let's listen. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men, referring to the angels, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, 
both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. If you're hearing this story for the first time, this is pretty shocking, isn't it? I mean, this is, who in their right mind would say something like this in this situation? It's shocking. How could Lot be so callous as to put his daughters in harm's way? I mean, if you're over at my house having dinner, having dinner guests, you know, we're enjoying ourselves, having a good time, and then something like this happens, and it's the choice between my children and my guests. <laughs> hey, uh, let me uh, get your coat here and uh, send you on your way. Sayonara. You know, it's just like, there's no way I'm going to put my kids in harm's way. No father would do that. So Lot offered his daughters to them instead. Now, Genesis doesn't give us one-dimensional characters. The Bible is much more sophisticated than that. We need to give the Bible credit for complexity. So these characters are not all bad or all good. And before we dismiss Lot as an irredeemable man, we have to realize that he is a complex character in the middle of a complex ethical dilemma. And so let's look more closely at his character. I want to give you four quick points about Lot that might help to round him out as a three-dimensional character that maybe also kind of help us understand better what's going on. The first one is Lot is called righteous in the New Testament. He's called righteous. 2 Peter 2 verse 7 calls him righteous three times in one verse. That's significant. So let me read this verse to you. And just just notice how, how out of the way Peter goes to really paint Lot as a righteous man. He says, God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Lot was both morally compromised, but also morally conflicted. And the fact that he's called righteous here is, is could be... In, in, I mean, his righteousness is by his affiliation with God's people. So as a category of God's people, he would be considered righteous in that sense. But is also saying he was tormented in his soul by the sensual conduct of the town around him. He was distressed by what was happening here. And he was distressed by this day after day, indicating that this was kind of an ongoing pattern in, in Sodom. So that's number one. Number two, Lot was the only man in Sodom who didn't join the gang of rapists out roaming the city. All the other fellows in town are out doing this. To the last man, young and old, it goes on and on to say, Lot was the only one who didn't join them. So he had distanced himself, at least from this practice. He knew what they were going to do because they've done it before. I mean, that's why Lot urged them when he went out in verse 7. He said, please, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Number three, Lot went out of his way to protect the angels. He talked about them being under the shelter of his roof earlier, right? So him going out of his way, especially, um, you see that this is, he went out of his way because they initially refused his offer of hospitality. They said, no, we'll stay in the town square. Lot said, no, 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 <laughs> trust me on this one. Come into my house. So they come into his house. Um, and that, that shows some sense of, uh, of, of character, that he's honoring the customs of his day to show hospitality to, to travelers. Hebrews 13.2 might have Lot in view. We don't, I, don't, I wouldn't assert this definitively, but it might have a Lot in view. Listen to this verse. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
course, Lot was aware uh, that they were sent from God, but that Lot might be in view in that verse. Showing hospitality is, is something of his character that we could say that's a, that's a positive mark. Number four, it isn't certain that Lot intended to actually give his daughters to them. It might have been a ploy. He might have been playing for time. Now, I don't want to get into the, into the weeds of why I think this might be the case, but at least there's, we know it, we have a record of what Lot said. We don't have a record in the Bible of what Lot actually intended. So this was a panic moment. So the point I'm making here is that clearly Lot, his character and his morality is deeply flawed, and he had put himself and his family in a terrible situation. Nevertheless, we should think of Lot as a Christian. He's called righteous three times in 2 Peter 2. He's a Christian, but he's a worldly Christian. He's compromised. He's not living a life that is honoring to God. He's put himself in a terrible situation. He's sown sin, sown compromise, and now he is reaping the consequences of his compromise. So Lot is a Christian who has made a huge mess of his life. And yet, we see here that God is merciful to him. God sent the angels to rescue him. God rescued Lot where he was and not where he should have been. And that's what God does for all of us. Amen? God saves us where we are. He saves us as we are sinners. Why we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what God had did for Lot, an Old Testament version of his mercy, pursuing his person, his man, uh, his people, rescuing them from the danger of the situation. Even though God would have been in the right to include Lot in the judgment, because Lot was sinful and rebellious, but God loved Lot, and Lot was one of his people, and so God showed mercy to him. Well, let's keep going. Let's look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, these are the angels now, the, the, the angels, they said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Interesting, that's the same Hebrew word for Isaac, Isaacing, laughter. They thought he was making a joke. So the men of Sodom were struck blind by the angels, and so that gave Lot a chance to escape the house to fetch his family, his future sons-in-law, and so forth. And whenever Lot finally found them and warned them about God's coming judgment, they thought it was an act. Lot had no credibility. He had no gravitas. He had, no, he had no, nothing about him that would take, cause, him to take, uh, take, cause them to take him seriously. I mean, if you've made a career out of moral compromise, you can't show up and preach hellfire and brimstone and expect people to listen to you. It's going to seem like a joke. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. 
So as the angels were urging Lot to leave, they're saying, we're going to tear this place apart. He lingers. Sodom had gotten into his heart like a splinter under your skin. It was lodged there. And so the angels, being merciful, they physically grabbed him. They seized Lot and his wife and his daughters and physically removed them from the city. His sons-in-law, who thought he was joking, well, they perish in the destruction. But Lot gets out with his daughters and his wife. Verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. One of the angels said this. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of that city was called Zoar. The word Zoar in Hebrew means little. So even after the angels had physically grabbed him and dragged him out of the city, he still didn't want to leave. It said he lingers. I mean, if you're in a burning house and you're about to die, you and your family, would you linger? Well, maybe you would if you, if you had a lot of heart and sentimental attachment tied to the place. Well, Lot had a lot of sentimental attachment to Sodom. He was going to miss the city. He was kind of looking around, wistfully thinking about, man, I'm going to miss this, I don't want to miss that. He lingered. And then he acts to the angels like it's going to kill him if he sticks around. Or excuse me, it'll kill him if he leaves entirely. So he, he, uh, he says, what about this suburb over here? This little Zoar. It's small, right? It, isn't it, it's a small town, God. You know, it, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just go over here. It's small. It's little. This whole episode here is, is like a metaphor for how sin takes hold of us. Sin burrows deep into our hearts to where God was trying to get Lot out of Sodom and Sodom had found its way into Lot. It was in his heart. His affection was there. Sin is like an addiction like this. Even as sin is destroying our lives, we still want to linger. We want to cling to it. We don't want to let it go. I had this one cousin who's a drug addict, heroin, for many years. And he's pretty much wrecked his life. He's in his late 30s. He can't keep a job. And he lives with his mom and his brother. His brother's also an addict. And they live in a trailer. And the boys don't work. They don't contribute, um, and their mom, who is too old to really be working the way she does, she pays for everything, and they take advantage of her. They steal from her, they, um, they're abusive to her. Now, the mom is a classic enabler. Even though her addicted son is abusing her and hurting her, you think, like, why won't you leave? You know, for people looking in on the outside, it's so obvious to us. Leave! Throw the boys out! 
But sometimes sin gets into our heart. It's burrowed in to where even though the destruction is evident, it's causing so much pain, you linger. You want to look back. You don't want to leave. You enjoy it too much. And whatever thrill or pleasure you get from the sin is stronger in your mind and in your heart than the pain and destruction it's causing everywhere else in your life. Sin is like that. It damages our lives and our relationships. And even still, oftentimes we love it too much to leave it. We, can't, we think we can't live without it. Do you notice how Lot did that? It was, he said, well, I can't escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. I'm like, that sentence doesn't make any sense. <laughs> if the destruction is coming to the valley, then you would want to be in the hills. And he says, no, I can't go to the hills because what if the disaster overtakes me and I die? But how about I go to this city that's down in the valley? It's small, as though the smallness of the city is going to protect him. We linger. And so we bargain with God, we'll make excuses, we'll say, hey God, this is a little sin, right? I mean, it's, there are a lot of bad sins out there, God. Trust me. God, there's a lot of bad sins, but this is a little sin. Just let me have my little compromise. Don't bother me about this one. And nevertheless, praise God for his mercy. God's mercy is, is bending so much. It's like he's being so merciful. He's like bending, uh, but he doesn't break. And so the angel says, okay, fine, I'll let you go to the city. God is merciful even in Lot's compromise. And God's mercy sometimes has to take us by the hand and physically lead us out and force us to leave. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. That's the little city. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, just notice the language there. This is intentional. This is not a natural disaster. This is quite literally an act of God. Do you see that? Verse 24, then the Lord, the Lord is the subject of the sentence, and then the active verb, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This was God's judgment on Sodom. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Honestly, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think it means she's dead, so we've got that much, but what it means for her to become a pillar of salt, I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's a part of the judgment because she lingered. She looked back. After the angels warned them not to look back, right? So this was part of the judgment. Verse 29, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So God's mercy on Lot was in part a function of his covenant relationship with Abraham, and Lot is part of Abraham's household. So Sodom was overthrown. God's judgment came on Sodom. And God's judgment was righteous and just. God is not embarrassed that he did this. God's position on this matter has not evolved, and he does not look back with regret, wishing now that he had not done this. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So the question here, two questions. Why did God judge Sodom? That's the first one. Why did God judge Sodom? Well, we saw this earlier in chapter 13, verse 13, which says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Do you remember that? So that was why God judged them. Second question, what was their crime? What was it that made them so wicked? Well, there's some people, scholars and so forth, that have argued from Ezekiel chapter 16 that God judged them for their lack of social justice. So let's look at that. Let's look at Ezekiel 16 and see what we can learn about God's judgment of Sodom. Ezekiel 16 verse 49 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. That's their crime listed here in Ezekiel. And there are three sins in particular that are mentioned here. The first one is pride, haughtiness, a a self-exalted, self-righteous spirit. Two, living in luxury while failing to aid the poor. That's where people make the social justice argument. They, uh, a sin of inhospitality, a sin of, of, of uh, neglecting of those that are poor and needy. But then three, you have this sentence here that said they were haughty and did an abomination before me. Well, what was the abomination they did? Well, that's the story we've been reading. The abomination they did was, it was an attempted abomination in the case of Lot and the angels, but clearly this was a, a common practice of the men of Sodom. It's why they were considered great sinners against the Lord, exceedingly wicked. In Leviticus 19, the, the sin of homosexual sex is called an abomination. So whenever it says here that they did an abomination, I mean, there are other things that are called an abomination, but Genesis 19 tells us more specifically what type of abomination it was. And it was the sin of this homosexual sex. Genesis 19 tells us that the entire city wanted to gang rape two angels. And so Lot pleaded with him, do not act so wickedly, I beg you, my brothers. So the argument that God judged the city of Sodom for uh, lacking social justice, for inhospitality, it's, it's, it's not. It's just a, not a true argument. It's a way to sidestep the real issue that is glaringly obvious in the text. Ezekiel 16 does not exclude Sodom's sexual sin, but rather it includes other sins to the list that God judged them for. So what is actually the sin that God judged them for? The fact of the matter is this. The preeminent sin God judged them for was sexual immorality. Now, we know this because the Bible and other places speaks about it. So I want to read you a text. This is from Jude uh, 7. Jude 7. It says, just as, just listen carefully to the words, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here in Jude 7, there's also a couple of different sins listed. 
There's the sin of sexual immorality, and then there's also the sin of unnatural desire. What does that mean? Well, sexual immorality, it's a, it's a, a, word, a Greek word that you, we've, we've referred to before. Pornea is the Greek word. This one is ekpornea, which is a, it's, it's a sin of illicit, any, it includes any form of illicit sex, forbidden sex. So it could be fornication, which is sex between a man and woman who are unmarried. It could be uh, the sin of prostitution or adultery or incest. Any form of illicit sex is included in this category of sexual immorality. And then the second sin listed here is unnatural desire from Jude 7. Unnatural desire. What does that mean? Well, this is an expansion or an elaboration on the first. So you have sexual immorality, which is already listed, and then added to that is unnatural desire. So that unnatural desire is a step further because it is a sexual lust towards an act that is unnatural. Are you with me? So let me, let me uh, explain this a little more. Sexual desire between a man and a woman is natural, right? Because God designed the bodies of men and women to fit together. And it's evident from nature that when their bodies fit together in that way, it is pleasurable and it leads to life. It creates um, a baby, in case you didn't know. <laughs> That's where babies come from. So whenever there is a lust of this sort, suppose a man lusts after a woman. He is lusting, and that is a sin, right? He needs to repent of that sin because he's lusting after something that does not belong to him. That is not his wife if he lusts after another woman. But that lust after that woman is a natural sexual desire. So he's lusting for something that in different circumstances, would be holy. So let's say that woman was his wife. If a man has a sexual desire for his wife, it is not lust. It is a holy thing. Amen? Praise God for that. And so the natural desire can be a sinful lust, or it, can, it does have a holy expression. It's sanctified by the Word of God in prayer and covenant of marriage. Sexual desire between two men or two women is unnatural because God did not design our bodies to be joined in that way. And so an unnatural lust, a lust, a sexual desire for an unnatural sexual act doesn't have any context at all where it is sanctified and holy. Are you with me? So a lust that a, might, a man may have to have sex with another man, there isn't a natural or holy or blessed version of that. You could say, what about marriage? Well, there is no such thing as a marriage between two men. That was made up by the Supreme Court, but that is not what marriage actually is. And it doesn't create life. It is an unnatural act. Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter 1. I'll read a couple of verses. You could read the whole chapter to get more context, but I'll read two, two verses. Romans 1, verse 26, saying, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
there's unnatural desire, a lust for an unnatural sexual act or an unnatural sexual relationship. He goes on, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. To put it another way, nature itself testifies that sex between two men is unnatural and harmful. I would say it is harmful and it is degrading to those who participate in it. This has been well documented medically, although it's not spoken of in public very much these days because it's become so controversial. It is politically incorrect. But because I love you, I want to tell you the truth. Let me give you some, some data here. According to the GLMA, so this is the Gay Lesbian Medical Association. So this is not a cherry-picked source. This is a source from um, the LGBTQ um, community. Men and gay men engage in much riskier sexual behaviors, and they do so more frequently than heterosexual men. One survey indicated that 28% of homosexual men have had more than 1,000 partners. Gay men are at a higher risk for various STIs, sexually transmitted infections, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, hepatitis, HIV, and anal cancer. Gay men are also more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, have eating disorders, and to experience depression and anxiety. Even though the sin is causing so much harm and destruction to the body, it's physically abusive to the male body. Even though that's the case, the sin itself has a powerful grip on people such that they make it an identity and say, this is who I am. This is not just a behavior I participate in. And so now whenever that happens, men and women who are caught in this lifestyle that is sinful and harmful to them, they're not only, they perceive that they're not only repenting of, a, of an act, but that they're having to repent of who they are. They're pe- repenting of an identity. And that's a much more powerful narrative. And that... that kind of drives the sin deeper into their heart. And it, is, it, it, it becomes very difficult. Even to talk about it. it, it is considered like hate speech to talk about it. My point in saying this is that it isn't loving to, 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 to say otherwise. If there were any other um, behavior that had the sort of physical outcomes that is associated with homosexual male sex. We would we'd be like, well, we need to love these people and warn them and not, you know, like help to try to help them out of this thing. But what is happening now in the world is that we're told that no, the only way that you can love any of these any of the folks that are caught in the sin is to affirm these choices. The only form of love is affirmation. And any challenge, any rebuke, any correction is hatred towards them. Do you see how inverted that is? it's, It's considered hateful towards them to tell them that they can have freedom in Christ from the very thing that is doing so much damage to them mentally, like psychologically, physically, spiritually. It isn't loving to affirm people that are harming themselves in this way. 
God's design for sex is evident from nature. Male and female bodies fit together in a particular way. Genesis 1 and 2 calls it very good. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Get this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So that sexual union and the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman with bodies and natures that complement one another and fit together, God says that is a picture for you of Jesus and his bride. This is a gospel presentation. So like a jigsaw puzzle, our bodies are designed to fit together in a particular way. And when you fit together, fit them together in the right way, they form a picture, right? And what I just read to you in Ephesians 5 is that the picture on the box of holy sexuality is a picture of the gospel. You're putting together a picture of Christ and his church, laying down his life for his bride and covenant love. But to embrace an LGBTQ lifestyle is to reject that design. So it's kind of like having a puzzle piece that says, I don't want to be part of this picture. It's like having an, a, a puzzle piece with an independent will that says, I don't want to be part of this picture, and you can't fit me. I'm going to, I want to fit somewhere else. Like, well, no, you, you, you do damage to the picture if you try to fit somewhere else. It's like if you have cheap puzzles, sometimes you can get a piece to fit that doesn't actually go there, and it's like this picture doesn't look right. It, it distorts, and, distorts and reorients the picture that God is telling, the story that God is telling through sexuality. And so you might think, well, that's that one piece. Like, just let that piece be. You know, the picture's still there. But it's like if you've got a thousand-piece puzzle and you, put it to, and you put it together and there's one piece missing, it's like that, you're like, it's incomplete. It doesn't work. You want it all to fit together. Even one missing piece damages the image and it obscures the beauty of what, what it is that God wants to communicate to us through that beautiful picture. So I want you to hear this. Sexual issues are gospel issues. This is not some pet sin that we like to harp on. No, we're saying this is a picture of Christ and his church and it's a profound mystery, Paul says in Ephesians 5. So these issues are not peripheral to the Christian faith. Sexuality is at the heart of it. There's an epilogue to our story. We have nine verses. And this epilogue, believe it or not, takes an even darker turn. So I want to to read this, make a comment, and I have four application points. So God's been gracious to Lot, rescuing him from destruction. But we're going to see he reaps what he's sown even further. Verse 30, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So the only three of them are only ones left, Lot and his two girls. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and get this, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. So there's not a straight man left. So what do they do? Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. 
He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both of the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. We talked a few weeks ago about a legacy. This is a, this is a twisted legacy where the Lot's daughters wanted to preserve a legacy for their father, but through their father. And so each of them have sons after they carry out their plan. Moab is the father of the Moabites. Ben-Ami is the father of the Ammonites. And look them up in the Bible. They're, they're, these, these people are um, exceedingly wicked people. They are the legacy of Sodom. Sodom is reborn in this cave. Sodom gets a new lease on life in the, these, these two boys, which become two nations. And these nations, over the course of Israel's history, will tempt Israel in horrific ways. They worship Molech and will tempt Israel to perform sacrifices to Molech, which is child sacrifice, a pagan god, child sacrifice. That's the story of Genesis 19. Ugly and tragic as it is. It's heartbreaking. I want to give you four points of application as we wrap up here. The first one is delight in the righteousness of God. And do not be ashamed at God's judgment. When there's a story or a text or an issue like this, it challenges us. It challenges what we desire and what we think of as right and good. So we need to delight ourselves in the righteousness of God because the more holy and righteous and exalted we see God as, the, the more it conditions our heart to, to be thankful for His grace and to, um, to be understanding and for, his, for His judgment. God was gracious to Lot. He rescued him from destruction. He's not embarrassed, though, by what he did to Sodom. And both Jude 7 and 2 Peter 2 say that God made an example of them. It's not just that he did it, but God did it to teach us. Look up those two verses. It said God made an example of, of Sodom and Gomorrah in both places. So God did this to warn future generations about the seriousness of sin, especially sexual sins, so that we would not follow in their footsteps. This is hard for modern people to accept because we believe God exists to affirm us and give us what we want. God's job is to tell us how great we are. That's what we want. And so any discomfort or frustration we feel indicates just how powerfully we've been shaped by worldly thinking. Because we read this story and we think God must be a monster. Rather than our impulse being God is righteous and even if I don't understand it, I trust that God is good and this is a righteous judgment. 
The thing is, God does not adjust his holiness to match our comfort level. We have to adjust to him. He's God. Number two, repent of self-righteousness. Repent of self-righteousness. So it's tempting to read stories like this and the applications that I've drawn out so far and to compare ourselves with others and justify ourselves as not being as bad as someone else. That's a deadly, deadly sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. None of us is righteous. None of us has any special access to the grace of God by virtue of our holiness or goodness. None of us is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of us. And if it were not for the the grace and mercy of God, we would all do the sins of Sodom and worse. But God has preserved us by his grace and not because of any goodness inherent in us. And for that, we should be monumentally thankful for how merciful and good God has been to us. Every one of us is a sinner in desperate need of God's grace and healing power. And we're all saved the exact same way, repentance and faith. We come to the cross, we bend the knee, we say, Jesus, I am not worthy, but you gave your life as a, as a, as a sacrifice in my place. I confess and repent of my sin, I receive your mercy. And no matter what your particular variety of sin is, Jesus will always receive you on the basis of your faith, the basis of what he did. And so if you're angry that we talked about these things today, check your heart. Love doesn't lie to people. And the world is lying to people who are in pain and they call it love because it's politically correct. It's the, the trending sin of the day. And so they've redefined love as affirmation only. And so if, if somebody is judging me right now, and you think I'm being hateful, that is self-righteousness, and you are a Pharisee. That's not love. And don't congratulate yourself for being so open and affirming when the thing that you're doing is making it more difficult to actually love people. God is merciful. God wants to rescue people from their sin. But if everybody on the planet is saying, no, it's great, it's affirming, in fact, this is wonderful, this is preferred, they'll never see their need. Number three, pray for LGBTQ people. I don't know the right way to say that, like, Gay people, LGBT, people of this lifestyle, pray for them to find Christ and receive his gift of life. We've got to keep our eye on the ball, folks. Jesus died for sinners. We're talking about gospel basics. We repent of sin, we receive the mercy of God, we walk in repentance and faith throughout our lives. Whatever the particular sins are that the Holy Spirit burdens us to repent of, that's, that's what we do. There is no glee or delight in singling out this particular sin of sexuality and, and say, it's like, oh, that's, 
God really hates them. Well, we really want to stick it to them. Not at all. The reason why we talk about it is because the opposite has been happening where sexual sins have been quarantined and the gospel has no access to it. We want folks to believe in Jesus. And we want them to have healing and forgiveness and their stories are out there everywhere, but they have a hard time finding the light of day because the narrative is that, well, this is your identity, this is who you are, God made you that way and to change would be wrong. Well, that's an anti-gospel message and it locks people in their sin and tells them that they can never change. So we pray for people that God will rescue them and we pray for ourselves to have the wisdom and the courage to know what to say because these things are hard to talk about. But we pray for wisdom and courage. But God, help me. Help this person. Give me enough love for them to speak to them in a way that they will hear and show compassion for them. Number four, pray that God will keep you faithful to his word regarding the doctrines of biblical sexuality. And also pray for your pastors to do the same. There are a lot of churches and pastors and Christian leaders that are caving to the social pressure. I saw one this week. It it really made me sad because an author that I respect. I've recommended his books. I've used them in our pastor school. And he tweeted something the other day that basically, uh, it sure looked to me like he was saying, hey, I'm, I'm affirming these lifestyles. I think we'll be treated about once a month, about that rate currently, but it may accelerate. And the thing is, is that you have we're reaching an inflection point where there's more and more Christian leaders that are, that, that are affirming this stuff and then you have more and more pressure from the world to do so and so there's this, this momentum building in that direction and to where the things that I've talked about today um, just a few years ago would not have been nearly as weird as it seems now. And it's going to keep getting weirder. And so what I want you to hear as people that are part of our church. I want you to hear that our church ain't budging on this issue. And so that gives you protection, right? That gives you a place where you know that I know the things that I believe to be true and that I see in the scripture. I know that these things are not going to shift in my church. Any pastor in this church that would ever dare to affirm, they will be disciplined, including me. If I ever lose my mind and decide that the Bible says something else, please discipline me. Please throw me out. Because that is not good for you. And it is lying to people. It is not good for them. And above all, it dishonors our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. Nevertheless, it's, there's pressure. There is pressure on us. So, Let me encourage you to settle this conviction in your heart now. Determine what you believe and build a firewall around it. Set it in cement. And don't let anything touch it. Don't listen to anybody who has a new novel argument. Because people can be very very creative in finding ways to make the Bible say what the Bible doesn't say. So pray for yourself. Pray for our elders. Um, 
I would, I would ask you also to personally encourage the elders and let them know that you want us. As church members, people part of our church, it helps to hear from our people that you want us to be faithful on this and that we're not speaking to hostile crowds, but that we're speaking to people that want us to be faithful on this. And so, so let us know, like, let us know that you need this, that, that encourages us, that encourages me to know that there are other people that see it the same way, and that strengthens me and encourages me. If, if you think I'm having a grand old time talking about this, well, you don't know me very well. Because these things are difficult, but we're, we're committed to this. Jesus said, I send you out as sheep among wolves, and that's our world. Let me pray for us. Our Father, you are so good and merciful, Lord. God, I... I know this topic is difficult. It stirs up so many feelings and fears and all those things, Lord. And I ask you, keep us faithful as a church. Strengthen all of the elders in our, in our conviction on this. Strengthen every member in our church, every city group leader, every element academy teacher, every attender, Anybody who's tempted by any variety of sexual sins, Lord, I pray that they will know that this is a place where we deal honestly with our sin and we walk in repentance together. I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit that what you wanted to say today is what was heard in the heart of each person present. Have your way. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.